Hi, everybody, and welcome to the May edition of our Natural Wine Club. My name is Eric Mercier, and I'm going to be guiding you through today's wines. Uh, so for this month, we've decided to do two orange wines and one red wine for you. Uh, orange wine as a style is something super interesting. Um, they're starting to become a lot more popular, but a lot of people are still confused about what they are. So first of all, orange wines don't need to be natural wines. You can make an orange wine with sulfur, with coloring, with added flavors, aged in new oak, whatever you, you want. So orange wine is just a style. It's not a philosophy of, of winemaking. Uh, it's just like red wine or white wine. It just represents one of the other colors of wine that you can have. Um, what makes orange wine orange wine is the the winemaking process. So um, in the case of something like white wine, you're taking white grapes, you're just collecting the grape juice from those white grapes, and you're fermenting just the juice. And that's how you end up with white wine. For orange wines, you're taking white grapes, and you're actually fermenting them uh, with the grape juice and the grape skins in contact with one another. And what this does is extract uh, not only a ton of flavor from the skins, but also a small amount of color. Different white grapes are actually different colors, just the same way that red grapes are slightly different colors from one another. That's why you can end up with red wines that are anywhere from uh, being really bright ruby to being super dark purple to being um, almost like a rusty orange red color, uh, like a bricky color. And it's the same thing with, with white grapes as well. You have a huge range. You have everything from uh, like Moscato Giallo, which is uh, a muscat variety that's quite yellow. Um, so it'll actually yield wines uh, when fermented on skins that look more yellow than orange. Um, things like uh, Gewürztraminer actually have a little bit of red pigment in the skin. So you can often end up with Gewürztraminer or Pinot Gris aged on the skins that tend to be uh, almost more of a pinky orange color. Um, or you could do something like Sauvignon Blanc, which is almost green uh, when you actually see it on the vine. And so this can result in wines that look almost more of a green-orange color. So orange wine is the style in general, but you can end up with quite a big color spectrum. You can, And same thing with the haziness of the wine. An orange wine doesn't necessarily need to be hazy or unfiltered in any way, shape, or form. Again, orange wine is, is strictly referring to the style, not some sort of you know philosophical ideas. Um, so orange wine historically has been produced uh, just as long or even longer than white wine has, uh, especially in the way that we now understand white wine. If you look back really uh, super long ago in history, um, usually you would have white and red grapes actually interplanted with one another. And when you went to go harvest, you would harvest everything. You wouldn't just harvest the white grapes and make one wine and the red grapes and make another wine. You would just harvest all the grapes that you happen to have in your vineyard and you would ferment them all together. There's a bunch of different names for what this style of wine would be called. Um, it would have been sort of this pinky, brownie, reddy sort of color. Um, they often call it like partridge eye because it has almost, again, that sort of like pinky reddy hue to it. Um, but this is probably what wines looked like for most of the history of wine, frankly. Um, eventually, people started separating white and red grapes, um, but they would ferment them on the skins and, and make basically a version of orange wine. And the reason for this is that the skins actually have all the preservative uh, ingredients that you would need in order for your wine to actually keep. 
And if we think back thousands of years ago, we not only didn't understand the microbiology of wine, so what was actually happening from a, from a yeast and bacteria perspective, um, we didn't understand the chemistry of wine, so we didn't understand oxidation, uh, we didn't understand the way that wines actually broke down or what we could use to, to make them last longer. Um, all that people knew was that when they fermented white wines, uh, or white grapes with the actual grape skins, the wines would last longer. And the reason for this we now understand to be these preservative factors. So this is things like uh, antioxidants in the actual skins, things like polyphenols, things like tannins. All these characteristics help wine uh, not go bad, basically. And if you are thinking what a person 2,000 years ago would be thinking, it's I really don't want my wine to go bad. I've just spent an entire year uh, you know, growing this thing, I definitely want it to survive. So there was no reason for them to make wines without the actual grape skins. Uh, again, thinking back 2000 years ago, wine was definitely a source of nourishment. It was considered calories. It was considered food. It was something that could give you energy, uh, especially over the wintertime when produce was a little bit more scarce. Um, it was something that would actually last year round and still be, you know, safe and healthy to drink. So you definitely didn't want to risk it. Um, so these wines would have all basically been made as, uh, as orange wines. So again, just to reiterate, white grapes macerated with the actual skins of the grapes, um, which has yielded some sort of color, uh, and that's what an orange wine is. So that's what two of our wines are uh, in this particular month. Um, this is a style that a lot of people are unfamiliar with. I always tell people that trying orange wine for the first time is sort of the same thing as trying wine for the first time, um, or blue cheese, or olives, or caviar, or oysters, or any of those things that uh, end up being some of our favorite flavors, uh, but at first they can seem a little bit strange and a little bit weird and take some time to get used to. So if you sort of approach it that way, instead of being like, this doesn't taste like white wine, which it definitely doesn't, and it definitely shouldn't, uh, <laughs> then it's a lot easier to sort of understand and, and get along with these wines. So for, for this month, we definitely decided to keep it weird, wacky, and wonderful. Uh, we kind of try and alternate every month. So one month will be uh, things a little bit more on the fringe, uh, stuff that maybe pushes the boundaries a little bit, which is honestly what we get more requests for anyways. Uh, and then the alternating months will be wines that are a little more uh, maybe classic in style, a little more familiar, a little more universal. Um, but that's the whole point of the wine club is to keep things you know, interesting, uh, expose you to flavors that you maybe haven't experienced before. So the first one uh, is Testalonga's Stay Brave. Um, this wine is made by my friend Craig Hawkins. Uh, he is in Swartland in South Africa. So Swartland is just north of Cape Town. Um, it is a very warm and very dry region. Uh, for those of you who have been keeping up with the news over the last couple of years, you'll realize that South Africa has been going through some pretty impressive droughts uh, to the point where uh, Cape Town was basically on sort of a water ration where instead of being able to take showers, you basically filled a bucket with water and used that to wash yourself. Um, all the sinks uh, in public places were actually turned off. So you would just use hand sanitizer instead of actual water to wash your hands. Um, it was pretty dire for a long time. That's how bad the drought was. Um, they were at the point where they might actually start need to 
uh, truck in water from from other countries just to be able to you know keep up with their population. Fortunately, they've had uh, a season or two of of rain since. Um, but Swartland was super hard hit, especially for vineyards like this that are actually dry farmed. So this vineyard's actually never irrigated, even though it's in this basically semi-desert environment. Um, this is very much a Mediterranean climate, so similar to what you would see in southern France or Spain, for instance. Uh, and because of that, you usually see a lot of those same grape varieties, um, whether that be Mouvedre, Carignan, Grenache, uh, a bunch of different grape varieties like that that, that do really well in the heat. Um, <clears throat> What's surprising for a lot of people is how well Chenin Blanc does here. Chenin Blanc comes from the Loire Valley, which is uh, a valley in France that is quite cold and quite wet. So the fact that this grape variety that, you know, sort of evolved to survive in those conditions also makes really fantastic wine in Swartland is really quite an anomaly. People are, are I have been trying to explain it for years, but I'm, uh, I'm glad that it, it's the case. Um, so this particular wine uh, is fermented on the skins for uh, just over a week, somewhere between a week and two weeks, depending on the vintage. Uh, it's been as low as, uh, you know, sort of four or five days uh, fermenting with the actual grape skins all the way up to um, several weeks, uh, you know, 14 14 days to 20 days even in some cases. Um, and the amount of time that an orange wine spends in contact with its actual skins will determine the amount that's actually extracting from those skins. There's a handful of other factors that'll affect the amount that you're actually extracting from those skins. But in this case, uh, Craig is trying to make something super delicate. So I'd say if there is one single universally appealing style of orange wine, this would probably be it. Um, it's very well-rounded, it's very precise, it's perfectly made. Uh, so this particular vineyard planted in 1981, uh, so actually getting quite old as far as vineyards go, especially vineyards that are dry farmed. They're farming this organically as well. Um, and this area is really famous for sort of uh, decomposed granite. Uh, so it's, it's basically like planting in sand, but that sand was once granite mountaintops, which is pretty impressive. Um, this wine for me is this perfect combination between uh, sort of savory notes and this really delicate fruitiness. Uh, this wine for me is always sort of um, very poised, very understated. Uh, it just has this elegance that's hard to even get into words basically. Um, for flavor profile wines, I always get a delicate floral quality, and this is basically true of all Chenin Blanc coming out of Swartland. There's always this really interesting floral element. On the white wines, it's usually more on the sort of chamomile end of the spectrum, but I find on, on this orange wine, um, it tends to have characteristics of almost orange blossom, something kind of in that category where it's a little more uh, sort of juicy and floral. Uh, for the savory notes, um, often you can quote notes of like ginger, uh, things sort of in that category. Um, I think I wrote white chocolate on this because I find that it has this really beautiful, almost nutty, nougaty quality to it, but without any sweetness at all. It just has like sort of the aroma compounds of that particular flavor, which I find really beautiful. Um, one of the things that's interesting with this wine too is that uh, Craig, who makes this wine, was basically the guy who made orange wine legal in South Africa. 
So before he came around, uh, he was the first one to make orange wine in South Africa, and this was all the way back in 2008. Um, and when he went to go export it, the export board for South Africa, they like to taste the wines before they, they leave the, the country to make sure uh, that quality is upheld. And they open the wine and they're like, this is not the, the right color. And he's like, oh, well, it's an orange wine. It's made differently than a white wine. It's not supposed to look like a white wine. They're like, well, we don't have a category for this, so you can't export it. And so he was extremely frustrated because his wines were picking up steam um, in places like London being served at, at Terroir, which is uh, one of my favorite wine bars in the world. Um, and, uh, and so he's like, people want this wine. This is like becoming a culty wine. And you're saying that I can't export it because it's not the color that you expected it to be. So basically, him and a bunch of other really famous winemakers uh, petitioned the government, and they eventually allowed them to create their own category uh, for orange wine. And then since then, they've created a category for what they call alternative wines. So wines that don't fit in with um, sort of basically the last 50 years of what we believe that wine, wine should look like as in being clear, uh, as in tasting like a particular thing. And so things like uh, Petillon Naturel, so pet nats, uh, things like orange wines, things like kind of weirder, funky reds, um, a lot of these will actually fit into those categories and are now legally able to be exported. And this is uh, due in large part to the work that Craig actually does, which is fantastic. Um, he's just an incredibly thoughtful man. When I went to go visit him in, in South Africa and sufficiently when he came here uh, to, to hang out with us in Calgary, um, or subsequently. Um, he is just, again, incredibly thoughtful. Everything he does, he does with a purpose. Um, he's not into weird wines. He likes his wines to be classic, really clean, really focused, really precise. And he's worked incredibly hard at that. And a lot of people consider this uh, amongst the best orange wines on, on the entire planet, and especially for the price. This coming in just over $30 a bottle, uh, that's a crazy deal to get organic farming, super small production. They're only making about, I think, 750 cases of this particular wine, um, and that's for the entire planet. And he exports to, I think, 30-plus countries. Uh, he's exporting to uh, places like Japan, uh, the U.S., the U.K., obviously, but all over the world. And um, so the fact that his wines have maintained this price is just it's amazing. So the second orange wine that we have uh, this month is coming from Kindeli. It's made by my friend Alex Craighead. Uh, fantastic guy. I actually went down to New Zealand to work harvest with him uh, at Kindeli a couple years ago. Uh, and so this is coming from a region called Nelson. Uh, Nelson is centered around the town of Nelson, and it's on the northern tip of the South Island. Uh, so when you're in Nelson, you're basically looking across uh, the strait um, over at Wellington, uh, which is quite a popular town and definitely the town that I'd say is most worth visiting, uh, in New Zealand. So definitely go check out those areas. Um, so what makes this area fairly unique is the type of, uh, soil that they have. So they actually have what they would call mudari clays, uh, clay is very famous for holding a lot of water. Uh, and allowing a lot of nutrients to be uptaken into the into the actual vines. And in some cases, this can be too much. Sometimes the vines, uh, their roots end up getting waterlogged. A lot of people don't realize that uh, vine roots actually really like 
oxygen. And so if you have too much clay, it basically suffocates the actual roots of the vines. But there's something interesting about the way that uh, moodery clay is um, composed, which basically allows the vine roots to get just the right amount of oxygen, just the right amount of nutrients, um, and just the right amount of water. So it, it's kind of perfect for everything. Um, when talking to Alex about it, even though there's other soil types in the region, including uh, a specific type of gravel um, and a handful of other soils, uh, he really thinks that the clays here are, are what make this region great for his style of wine. So he tends to make his wines at fairly low levels of alcohol, which means that the body of the actual wine needs to come from something other than just booze. Um, so this either means that you need to add body via sugars um, or via flavor intensity. And uh, since he's fermenting all his wines to total dryness, meaning that there's no sugar left in any of them, uh, he needs these grapes to have substance even at lower alcohol levels, uh, this ripeness, this intensity of flavor. And he finds that the grapes that are grown specifically on these clays tend to give that characteristic, um, this real nice uh, roundness to them, even though they're so light and fresh. Um, they're very centered. So this particular wine uh, is made from Gewürztraminer uh, predominantly. Gewürztraminer is an extremely aromatic grape variety that comes from uh, kind of right on the border of Germany and France. Um, this grape variety uh, is um, a very old grape variety, actually. It's, it actually predates a lot of the grape varieties that we're, we're sort of familiar with. Um, some people call it a, a founder grape variety um, because it's actually spawned so many other grape varieties, at least in its other form, which is called Sauvignon, which is uh, genetically identical but less aromatic than, than Gewürztraminer. Um, and Gewürztraminer also has very pink skins, which is kind of a cool feature of it as well. Sometimes the wines tend to have almost like a little bit of a, a pinky hue, whether they're made into white wine or orange wine. They can have just this little hint of pink that I think is cool. Gewürztraminer is also extremely flamboyant from a flavor perspective. Uh, it's like <laughs> very loud. Uh, <laughs> basically, the flavors are, are turned up to 10 for sure, maybe 11 uh, in some cases. Um, but that's one of the things that I love about it is that it's super gregarious. I don't think that all wines need to be so uh, tight and focused. Sometimes they can be a little bit more playful, a little bit more wild. Um, this is fermented on the skins for a short period of time, only about five days, uh, and fermented in amphora. So amphora are clay vessels. Uh, so think of basically a giant clay pot, uh, maybe six feet tall is, I think, roughly how big theirs were. Um, and you actually ferment the grapes in there, and it kind of lets the wine breathe the same way that a barrel would, but doesn't impart any woodiness to the wine. Uh, so it's a little bit more delicate in some cases, um, and because of the shape of it, it basically allows the wine to stir itself, which is super, super interesting. It keeps the wine kind of alive and very, um, yeah, very active. Um, stirs up all the lees and stuff like that. So all those, those yeast cells that are sort of floating around in there, instead of just all tumbling to the bottom, they kind of cycle up and around, uh, at least based on the shape that he's using, which is, again, fantastic. Um, the other two grape varieties in this wine are uh, Riesling and Pinot Gris. Uh, the Riesling, he actually directly presses the, um, the juice out of the Riesling directly onto 
the Gewürztraminer skins. So it actually is Riesling juice touching Gewürztraminer skins, which is not something that normally happens, but it's resulted in something super fun. Uh, and then Pinot Gris. Pinot Gris, when fermented on the skins, can be quite savory. Um, I always describe it as almost um, like this fenugreek kind of quality to it, this spicy herbal um almost a meatiness to it. It's they're really interesting. Um, this wine is only made from a very small part, Pinot Gris, um, but it's definitely still in there enough that it's probably playing at least a little bit of an influence. Um, this wine from a flavor perspective is pretty classic as far as Gewürztraminer goes, but then amped up because of the actual use of the grape skins, which are imparting a ton of flavor and a ton of texture. Uh, so you'll get things like rose petals, uh, lychee, um, cherry blossoms, all these like really crazy aromatic qualities. It's like walking through a rose garden or something like that. Um, but also these really tropical fruit characteristics as well, uh, really passion fruity, uh, some of the savoriness that you'd get from something like tamarind and ginger and turmeric. Uh, it's a really wild, extravagant wine. Um, I figured since we included one uh, very universally appealing orange wine, I figured the other one, we can get a little more wild. We basically just got enough of this wine for Wine Club. We get crazy small allocations of this. Um, this wine is stupidly sought after, uh, but this year, instead of just selling it, we decided to keep it aside and, and just use it exclusively for the Wine Club because uh, you guys deserve to drink all the cool stuff. So even though we've gotten you know dozens of emails asking if they could buy a bottle, we're like, nope, sorry, it's just for Wine Club. Nobody else can have any. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I thought that would be kind of a, a fun way to get to share this wine that we normally, again, sell out of in a week every year. Um, the wine club is expanding very quickly over the last little bit. Uh, we really appreciate the fact that you guys have told all your friends and um, you know allowed us to grow so drastically. It's making it more and more challenging to uh, figure out which wines to put in the wine club, but I think that the wines just keep getting better and better each time. Uh, so it's, it's really great. We're starting to have to actually uh, order wines specifically for wine club uh, and basically beg for higher allocations in order for us to use like the really cool stuff in, in the wine club, which is great. Uh, next month in particular is going to be pretty fantastic. We've already set aside all the wines for it because we know that they're going to vanish otherwise. So, uh, And so the final wine that we have today, um, this is coming from Eric Texier uh, in the Rhone Valley in France. This is called uh, Vaison la Romaine. Um, he is located in a little town called Brezem. And when you think of the famous towns in the Rhone Valley, most people think uh, Gigonda and Chateauneuf-du-Pape and Cote Roti and Hermitage. Uh, there's a handful of really famous areas in, in the Rhone. Um, and Eric Texier has kind of gone back a little more historic here. So to regions that used to be extremely famous. Um, when we were talking earlier about uh, about Gewürztraminer and sort of its sibling, um, Savignon being founder grape varieties, so the grape varieties that have then turned into basically all the grape varieties we now know and love. Um, Syrah's parent, which is called Serene, uh, is sort of in that same category where it sort of yielded some of our, our most famous grape varieties. And you don't really see a lot of Serene planted anymore. It's actually quite rare. Uh, most people haven't even heard of it, in fact. And What's cool about uh, Eric Texier is that he actually works with this great variety, um, sort of doing an ode to what Syrah was 
before it was Syrah, I suppose. Um, this particular wine is a, is a blend of a handful of different grape varieties. So this is Grenache, Carignan, and Cinso, uh, grape varieties that you often see together in the same blend. They kind of uh, balance out each other really nicely. Grenache can tend to be really high alcohol, um, very juicy, um, but maybe lacking in structure sometimes. Carignan tends to be quite spicy, quite wild, um, a little bit earthy, um, but has a little bit more structure to it. And then Cinso tends to be higher in acid and way more delicate. So by blending these three grape varieties together, you usually end up with something that's that's pretty well balanced. Uh, and that was exactly his goal here. He's fermented these grape varieties as whole clusters, which means that he didn't take the grapes off the stems. Um, there's a handful of reasons for doing this, but basically the grapes ferment from the inside out. Uh, and this yields sort of fruitier flavors, uh, a lot more intensity, and makes the color very, very vivid. Um, all that color sort of leaches out of the skins directly into the flesh of the grapes. So when you press those grapes, uh, you end up with, again, these really wild, very vivid, uh, almost purpley colors. Um, this wine was actually fermented in concrete uh, for the most part. Concrete, I think, is one of the best vessels to ferment uh, wines in, especially these grape varieties. Um, for me, it makes the wine a lot more aromatic and more delicate. Apparently I'm talking a lot in this uh, particular podcast, getting thirsty here. Um, so yeah, by fermenting in concrete, uh, again, it's sort of what we were talking about with amphora in the sense that concrete is porous, so it breathes, but at the same time, it's it's flavorless. Um, they're often lined on the inside with um, something like beeswax or can be lined with even glass um, on the inside. Uh, or a handful of other substances, or it can just be left as raw concrete as well. But basically, it's not imparting any flavor. It's just there for a vessel. Um, and the vessels are quite large, so they prevent things like oxidation from happening because your surface area of wine to oxygen is, is greatly reduced. Uh, Eric Texier, as far as a winemaker goes, is one of the most interesting guys on the planet. Um, we've been wanting to use one of his wines in Wine Club for, for literally the last two years now. Uh, and then this was sort of the first opportunity where we could sort of make it work, make it fit with everything else that we had. And uh, he's a cult figure in the natural wine world, even though he doesn't necessarily consider himself a natural winemaker. He hates labels of any type. Uh, he doesn't want to be uh, considered organic. He doesn't want to be considered biodynamic. He's borrowing all the best uh, pieces of each philosophy and applying it to his vineyard. Uh, and so he thinks that he's sort of outside of any of those, uh, I don't know, any of those labels, I suppose. And so uh, he's he ends up being sort of a uh, I don't know, he kind of wants to roll in his own circle. He kind of wants to do his own thing. Um, and because of this, he sort of developed this uh, persona for not really caring what anybody thinks <laughs> uh, in the sense that he's not making these wines because he thinks that you'll like them, uh, which seems kind of rude and counterintuitive, but his reason behind it is is pretty fair. 
Um, the whole idea for him is to capture the time and place in which that wine was made as accurately as possible. So he's like, I fell in love with this piece of land and I want it to show through in the final wine. And if I manipulate it or make it just taste the way that people want it to taste, then it's not really going to be representative of, of that land. It's like if you were to take a picture of the prairies uh, and then just like add in a random like mountain or a palm tree just because somebody said that they like mountains and palm trees. It's like the prairies are still beautiful. Uh, they're just, they don't have mountains or palm trees. And it's the same thing with uh, with this particular wine is he's like, cool. Like, I don't really care if you like new oak. I don't care if you like more ripeness. I don't care if you like sweetness. I don't care if you like blackberry flavors. He's like, that's not what this wine is. So hopefully you like it for what it is, but he's like, I would be dishonest if I just added those things in. Um, and I really like that philosophy because it's kept him very honest. Uh, and more importantly, he likes his wines. Uh, <laughs> I think that if you're a winemaker and you don't like what you're making, then you should probably you know, find another profession. And I found this a lot when visiting winemakers in, in a ton of regions all over the world. When you go to the commercial wineries, a lot of them are like, yeah, we don't really care. We've made it. it you know, passes a tasting panel. All the numbers look good when we've analyzed it under a microscope. Um, and so they're like, there you go. It's great, right? It won this like little silver medal or something like that. And they're like, oh no, we don't drink our wines. We drink good wines. So it's, it's you know, if the winemaker's not drinking his own wines, they're not really excited about what he's making, then, then you definitely need to be worried. And I think Eric Texier is definitely uh, a guy who likes drinking his own wines. Uh, so before he got into to winemaking, uh, he was actually a, a nuclear engineer, which is pretty impressive. Uh, it's hard to make a bigger 180 than going from uh, from an engineering job to a winemaking job, especially making natural wines, uh, which is in theory on the other end of that spectrum. And uh, he's sort of become famous for one of the guys who's trying to actually apply science to natural wine uh, and actually, again, sort of integrate the scientific method into natural winemaking. There's a lot of winemakers, even winemakers that we work with, frankly, that are way more into sort of the spiritual aspects of, of winemaking, way more into the artistic aspects of winemaking. And although we really appreciate these, uh, we also really like the science behind it. So knowing why certain wines develop volatile acidity or understanding how um, mousiness works or understanding what the amount of sulfur that you need in a wine in order to keep it stable actually is. And so he carries out a ton of experience, uh, experiments and is cited often in you know a handful of books that I have on the shelves at least, uh, as well as other papers um, about the things that he's actually doing and I'm not sure how much he's doing it for the benefit of everybody else, but I really like the idea of somebody who's actually uh, sort of thinking about the winemaking process on a, on a scientific level. So that sort of thing gets me really excited. Uh, I hope one day I'll, I'll get to meet this guy because, uh, again, everything that I've heard is that he's he's quite legendary. This is not one of the wines that we import, which is also why it's uh, taken us a little bit longer to fit it into the wine club. Um as far as flavor profile goes on this particular wine, uh, this is classic Rhone, in my opinion. So it's got mostly dark fruit characteristics, but also some red fruit characteristics, uh, like that wild cherry note that you just always expect out of Grenache. Uh, maybe some of the, the strawberry note that you'd expect from Grenache as well, uh, as well as from Cinso, um, but more sort of on the darker end of the spectrum. 
lots of spice, lots of savoriness. Um, the Rhone Valley is famous for, for usually producing wines with what we call a garrigue characteristic, which is a wild blend of herbs that grows in southern France. So it's things like rosemary, things like sage, uh, things like lavender. Um, it's basically what you'd find in, in Herbe de Provence, for instance. Um, but this wine tends to have a little bit of that characteristic where it's both herbaceous and floral, but in this very sort of uh, savory, um, I don't know, in a very beautiful way. Uh, last month, everybody went crazy for the Mother Rock Grenache. Uh, and so I felt like this would be a good opportunity to show a Grenache from uh, a different part of the world just because everybody liked it so much. Uh, so I thought I'd uh, offer up a little treat for everybody. Uh, I think that's basically everything that I have to say about these wines today. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed today's podcast. And if any of you have any questions at all, feel free to reach out. You can reach me at Eric, E-R-I-K at juiceimports.com uh, for emails. Uh, you can send a message to us on Instagram. We're just at juiceimports. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That's that's about it. So looking forward to chatting with you guys again next month. Thank, thank you uh, so much for the support. We'll chat soon. Bye. With heart and hands And he lets me sing